Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. Hey, how are you doing? It's Brandon Young from the Silmarillion Seminar. This is episode number 31 on the Akala Beth and the Downfall of Man, capital M, of which I have titled, subtitled, Frank from Numenor, which is one of the funniest Olsenisms that you'll get in this podcast. This episode is jam-packed with cool material. You're going to get lots of things. For example, Numenor, is it a gift or a prison? The note Tolkien wrote to himself to, quote, do the Atlantis myth and its relation to Egypt and Plato, the Lost Road, a la Tom Shippey, how the fading motif of the elves seems to be reversed by men here in Numenor. This is the first time we had have a sort of advancement. Also, this is the only time we have an overt monotheistic religious worship and the consequences of this, even having biblical parallels, perhaps. We also talk about the origins of evil here through Sauron and Numenor, and the ban of the Valar, their motivations and their intentions in their subcreation, the preservation of Quenya language through the Numenorians, but obviously its subsequent banishment, which will signal the inevitable deluge to come. I hope you all enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Okay, good evening and welcome to a slightly belated edition of uh, the Silmarillion Seminar. Today, having actually and finally finished the Quintus Silmarillion after about, goodness, what is it now, eight months of discussion, um, we are in the Akalabath tonight, and my fearless plan is to do the Akalabath in two weeks. That is, we're going to talk about the first half tonight. My goal is to get up to, or as close to as we can, to the ascension of Arpharazan the Golden, and then we will uh, talk about the downfall of Numenor next week and uh, finish the Akalabeth. That is my uh, that is my goal, which I know that most of the participants will be str- uh, uh, fighting against at all points uh, <laughs> as much as as much as possible. In fact, they're all making text comments now about how cute it is when I try to set uh, goals, which they suspect I'm not going to attain. Anyway, um, but but off we're going to go. Anyway, um, I want to so we're going to start at the very beginning here, and I want to look at we get we get at the beginning of the Akalabeth a kind of a recap. Um, not exactly a recap, but kind of a glance back. Since the Akalabath is a story primarily about men, in fact, in many ways, it is by far the most man-oriented story. We've had, um, you know, humans be the focal point before at certain moments. In fact, in particular, we were talking about this in the context of the Turin Turambar story, that Turin's story was really, the you know, one of the most or possibly the most um focused on humans and humanity uh, uh, stories that we had. But this one, you know, and we've had the a couple stray um, chapters along the way of the coming of men to the West and of men in particular. And we go back over some of that material here at the start in the first couple paragraphs of the Akalabath as a context. But I think it's interesting uh, the ways in which we learn a little bit more here and also we, um, we move forward. Uh, and I think... To, in my mind, the description of what happens in Middle-earth after the War of Wrath is, I think, really fascinating. Um, but let's uh, let's get to... I know several of you, you guys had a, a, a bunch to say about the interactions between the Valar and, and humans, and um, 
that you and and yeah st- stuff that you wanted to talk about here in this section so let me let me go ahead and kick it over um to you guys who wanted to uh who wanted to 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 talk about this um let's see i know on the notes i'm seeing chris and brandon uh jack you guys all had thoughts on this john um and if you want to jump in here brandon go ahead yeah i just thought um it was really cool to see uh Ase raise an entire island um, from the depths of the ocean, I, I would assume that Olmo would have such a power. But it seems like, what does this have to say? What, my question is, what does this have to say? Number one about Ase, how powerful and underrated I think he he really is, Ase Un. Um, but number two, what what kind of what is Olmo's role? You know, he he sends dreams. He's he's kind of more of a mysterious character, and I think we take him for granted for um because he shows up a lot in the Cimmerillion and interacts a lot um we hear a lot from him but he he's he's a lot more mysterious than meets the eye i think i think that's based a, on that passage yeah that, that's a really cool point and it brings up i think a couple really interesting things one is that you know certainly one simple take-home message here is that uh to remember how powerful some of the Maiar are i mean ase is one of the Maiar, um but he is um he is very powerful in fact through you know from the beginning from the uh the very first conceptions um in the books of in the book of lost tales ase and olmo were rivals and we get a brief glimpse of that lived on into the valaquenta where we're told that there was a time when morgoth briefly corrupted ase to his service and offered him the whole realm of olmo um you know to try to let him set up on his own um and there was battle in the sea um and then you know ase came back to his allegiance However, uh, you know, and I think you know we 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 don't see that here exactly, but we can see um, Ase has a, has a, a a pretty powerful role and clearly can do a lot. The second thing that I would say to that also is that sometimes people are very quick when they look at the Valar, especially in the Valaquinta where you get the overview of them, are very quick to look at the Valar and sort of think of Greek equivalents. So like, okay, so Olmo is like Poseidon and Manwe is like Zeus. And certainly there are some similarities. Um, but but I think that actually Ase is a good illustration for how that's not really true. Uh, Olmo is not really like Poseidon. And, you know, one of the many of the things that we would see Poseidon doing, uh, perhaps we see Ase actually doing. And Olmo, as you say, Brandon, obviously he does much more than just look after the oceans. Um, he is involved in, in many other things and his thought and his mind and his, uh, you know, his, his concerns are going all through Middle Earth. And, uh, you know, we saw what an important role he played. Uh, throughout, especially the latter parts of the first age, um, so so yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's a lot of really interesting things there. Uh, Matt, go ahead. Yes, um, I would just uh, had a question about the terminology. Um, Ase raised the island, and Yavanna enriched it, but it says that Ale established it. Um, exactly, what would that mean? I mean, was it done in his uh, direction or decision? Or does that mean he fine-tuned the island that Ase raised? Or, in other words, I have no idea what it means. Yeah, it, it is a it is a good question. I mean, I th- I think it means that he like rooted it in place. That 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 Ase raises it. Um, yeah, let's see. I'm looking for the I'm looking for the passage here to make sure that I get this right. Um, it's um, towards the bottom of two sixty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like the second to last paragraph. Yep, yep. 
It was established by Aule, enriched by Yavanna, and the Eldar brought the... Yep, yep. Raised by Aule out of the depths. Established by Aule. Yeah, I mean, I think that that... Because, you know, Aule, he's the the guy who builds mountains, right? So, you know, Aule can... Remember, Ase was the one who was who was moving the island around when the when the Eldar were getting uh, shipped across the sea on an island in the first place. It was it was Ase who was kind of tooling around with the island there, um, uh, and uh, Aule here is is establishing it. By which I think it means to to root it in place and to establish it as a firm um, as a firm island. Um, I mean, Ase is involved in that too. In fact, there's an there's an especially interesting passage um, in the Book of Lost Tales where Ase roots uh, Tall Arasea in place when he wasn't supposed to, uh, and against Olmo's wish. Um, but uh, but anyway, I think that that's I, I, my sense is that that's that would seem to make sense as to what Aule was doing there, um, because he's the because he's the mountain wow. guy. Um, so that's my well. Uh... Go ahead. Yeah, I also thought because, you know, Ale's the great craftsman, maybe he, you know, uh, created all the structures on the island and made it, you know, more than just a, a lump of land, you know. Like you said, the mountains, but also other features. And he kind of uh, completed uh, the work that Ase had started. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, to sort of, you know, basically he sort of forms it as a landmass. Um, yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, it's, that is certainly in keeping with what we see Ale doing and what we know to be his role in the establishment of, of you know, the continents at the beginning. Um, so, yeah, that, that certainly does make sense. Um, looking back at the sort of the history of humankind, the little synopsis of the history of humankind that we get here, um, one thing I think that is, okay, two things, two things that I think are interesting here, which set up the story of Numenor really importantly. One is the overall shape of the history. That is, they start, essentially, in darkness. That is, perhaps they were not always in darkness. Perhaps there was something, um, you know, prior to the darkness. But they were told they fell swiftly under the dominion of Morgoth, and they... And they listened to his evil and cunning words, and they were worshiping the darkness and fearing it. So this is this is the ancient history of humans that that were given. Then we have an, we have two things which happen. First, the migration into the west, the pursuit of the light uh, by the Adain. Um, they're going to the west to try to find the light. So their emergence from darkness to light, which is also a movement from east to west uh, geographically on the continent. And then they do deeds of great valor in the war against Morgoth, as of course we know perfectly well, having read the Quinta. Um, and then we get bright Eärendil. So you know the 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 contrast, the final contrast, the sort of ultimate contrast to that darkness that they worshipped and feared before. Now from this we have bright Eärendil emerging, and his ship Vingilot, and 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 it's nice to know the uh, the the. Adunayak version of that, Rothinzil, and and off he goes. And then what happens? Morgoth is overthrown, and in, and so this sounds like okay. Now we're so we had darkness, and then we moved towards light, and now the darkness is perishing. Right, the night is past, the day has come. Uh, except that's not what happens, and instead they go back into darkness. Um, 
And men dwelt in darkness, and were troubled by many evil things that Morgoth had devised in the days of his dominion, demons and dragons and misshapen beasts, and the unclean orcs, and the lot of men was unhappy. Uh, I love that sentence, and the lot of men was unhappy. Um, so we get this return. So again, so the two trends that I would want to point to there, which I think are so important in setting up the Numenorean story, is first that relationship with darkness, the emergence out of darkness, the, the sort of the descent into darkness, the emergence out out of it, and then the redescent back into it that we see happening in Middle Earth, and secondly, that westward motion, which is what happens there in the middle and kind of culminates in Arendo. Joe, all right. Um, one thing I just wanted to kind of talk about that I thought was really interesting is the effort that pretty much all of the uh, Ainur put into the making of this place. I mean, uh, it says uh, Ale and Yvana enriched it. I mean, just kind of like poured poured themselves into it, kind of, and then. Yeah. Uh, I mean, everybody put the flowers and stuff in it. It's just, I mean, you didn't see that much effort on other parts, and uh, what men did was great, and uh, I understand that they're part of the line of, like, uh, Arendelle, but it just, I mean, it was really surprising, and it was a good surprising to see that happening. But I just didn't understand why, I mean, I guess I do kind of understand the Noldor left, and one thing led to another, and they didn't feel like blessing them as much. But it was just, it was just really interesting how they all focused in on this one specific kind of blessing for these guys. I mean, you don't really... Since, like, the making of Arda, really, you don't see them all working together like that to do something like that. Yes, yes, I agree. I mean, this is a different kind of plan. It's 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 a little bit like what they did with the Eldar in the first place when they went and invited them over. Hey, come and live in the Blessed Realm, uh, you know, with us and in the light of the trees. It's kind of like that. We're going to build a separate little Blessed Realm for you. You're mortals. You you know, they say, you know, during the debate that happens later, they say, you know, that they can't, that they can't handle the bliss. But they... Um, but you know they're going to build this this maximally blissful um uh place for them and you're right i mean the 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 emphasis and i think the naming of the valar there really does serve to emphasize the personal role that the valar take here this is not just and they are blessed by the valar because of course in one sense you could say well anybody who is you know, uh, prosperous in the world is blessed by the Valar, right? I mean, if you've had a good harvest, you've been blessed by Yavanna. But it's more than just that. This is, you know, that that these special and specific and personal blessings have been poured out by the Valar upon the Numenorians, and that's clearly a very important context for the beginning, uh, the establishment of their uh, of their realm. Chris, well, my thoughts kind of dovetail from that pretty good i mean they've done all these great things for the three houses and that's wonderful and they made them this wonderful place to live but what about the men in middle earth i know some of them had uh, sided with morgoth and a lot of them had turned back to evil but i guess the the uh the uh the ancestors of like the, the Rohirrim and the Brelanders and some other of the people who, at least later on, maybe they went down into evil too and came back. But the, it just seems like other than the, the three houses, the, once again, the Valar leave Middle-earth on its own and, and leave very vulnerable men. You know, Morgoth's gone, but all of his little uh, cronies are still there to, uh, to uh, mess things up and to mess with uh, the men who were left in Middle-earth. It's, uh, you know, it's great what they did for the Numenorians, but... Uh, they kind of let down Middle Earth again. Yeah, and that's really pronounced. I think much more pronounced than it was the first time. I mean, you could say that they did the same thing with the Eldar and the Avari, for instance. Um, but it... but it, it's one thing that uh, um, struck me, and I'm, it's, this isn't... It, I mean, everybody 
you know, we decide that the orcs are pretty much irredeemable, that they can't be brought back. Well, it's almost like the Valar are treating the other men, other than the three houses, like, well, they're not worth saving. They can't save. They've turned to Morgoth, so, so screw them, you know. Yeah, I mean, there are several factors here that, that make it that make it interestingly different on the one hand. The Avari were merely unwilling. You know, the, 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 the Valar said, hey, do you want to come? And they said, no thanks. So, okay, fine. You know, they said no thanks, so you let them stay. Um, there's no, even though they are, in a sense, being neglected and being, you know, they're made into kind of, you know, the second-class elves, they are, they chose that, you know? So you could say, okay, well, that's fine. That's all, that's all perfectly fair. Now, but now you could say, well, well, the men deserve it because they, they're being punished because they sided with Morgoth. So, so if their lot is unhappy, well, it's no, it's that's no worse than they deserve. But of course, the elves are immortal. The Avari who chose stay there and keep choosing. You know, like the, those same ones who chose are still there. Um, what about the great grandkids of the people who fought for Morgoth? Are they uh, are they still deserving of this punishment? This unhappy lot that the Valar have wished upon them? Um, I, it's a and complicated about, situation. And the he the they say it a couple different times that there are tribes that are related to the three houses that re- remain in Eriador. Mm-hmm. And uh, presumably, you know, you don't know really what their status was, but you kind of hope that they didn't really fall in with a bad crowd themselves. Um, I guess we don't know one way or the other, um, but they, they were ones that had gone west to begin with, so you might hope that they had at least resisted turning to evil. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and, and exa- I mean, I think the the question that you ask that is like, okay, so so is it okay to view the evil men in the same way as orcs? I mean, this is something, this is something that you know, if you notice, if you look at, if you look in the Lord of the Rings, especially at the battle sequences, especially at the ends of the battles, uh, in the Lord of the Rings, a distinction is made between the human, the humans who are fighting with the bad guys and the orcs. Um, You'll remember, for instance, two quick examples. At the end of the Battle of Helm's Deep, what happens to the orcs? This is a quiz now. Killed to the last one. Huh? Killed to the last one. Killed to the last one. Not a single orc survives because uh, the Huorns kill them all, right? And those that are not slaughtered on the field go into the wood and the, and the Huorns killed them all. What happens to the men? What happens to the, to the Dunlendings who are fighting for Saruman? They're sent home. Yes, they surrender and are shown mercy. Um, and the same exact thing happens after the battle uh, at the at the Black Gate at the end when the ring is destroyed. Uh, so there they are, and there are armies of orcs, and there are armies of the Haradrim, and uh, when Sauron is overthrown, and then everybody, you know, the the bad guys are all running around uh, witless, but, you know, bereft of will, suddenly steerless, and all that, and and uh, some of the orcs are like killing themselves as we're you know we're told throwing themselves on their swords and whatever. Um, the orcs are hunted down. The men, again, they're surrendered. You know, they 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 surrender and they're and they're and they're set free. Now we we learn in the appendices that there are still wars with the Haradrim thereafter. It's not like and now you know peace and goodwill is established immediately between Gondor and Harad, but. Um, but there is a distinction made, and that's pretty that's pretty consistent um I think that we can see there so so again it, Tolkien does make a distinction he doesn't just say certainly in Lord of the Rings he's not saying, yeah, uh, you know the bad humans they're exactly like orcs um remember what Gandalf says to Frodo when Frodo in the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring says that surely Gollum is as bad as an orc um and uh and Gandalf of course makes his pity um 
makes his pity speech um, that uh, that that Laura was quoting in her talk. Um, but again, this is all coming back to Chris's point about what the Valar are doing here. And I don't think we can necessarily say by abandoning them in Middle-earth and leaving them to this to the darkness and to the, the unhappy lot that they end up having, that they're being treated like orcs. But... Um, I didn't really, I didn't really think that they were treated. I just thought that there was a parallel that they seemed like they'd kind of given up on them, or at least they fo- they decided to focus just on the Numenorians, mm-hmm. um, and maybe they di- maybe they didn't really feel that they were like orcs, but their treatment of them really wasn't a whole lot uh, better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think it's it's it is it is it is very interesting to look at. It's. I think it's a pretty fascinating comparison and contrast between what's happening with the Numenorians here and what happened with the Eldar the first time and the second time. You know, we've had this is this is a, you know a major Valar intervention with the children of Iluvatar as a whole in Middle Earth, um, and to see the ways in which their treatment of the men is similar in some ways to the elves, but also different. Um, I think is I think is I think is pretty interesting. Brandon, go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say something. A couple other things really interesting about men is that how um, it says that once they start learning the uh, Eldar language, that that just by virtue of knowing that language, it opened up just entire worlds. And um, I remember when I was learning French, um, there are certain things in other languages that um, you really just can't get the feel of unless you're say, in the French countryside or whatever. Um, and it's just interesting to me that the, the Numenorians really started to excel when um, they learned the Eldar language and b- became scholars and um, peaceful, um, which I thought was interesting. They became men of peace, um, although they nourished shipbuilding and sea craft and were great mariners. It just seemed that this elvish influence was, is still there throughout. Which I find interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think that um, it is, of course, and of course, it's unsurprising. Uh, you know, this is a Tolkien story after all to see the significance that the languages play, uh, because of course, Brandon, just as you are, as you are pointing out, the 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 excellence of the. Numenorians is demonstrated by their use and preservation, not just use, but preservation of the Eldar tongues, right? They preserve Quenya as a language of lore, um, even though Quenya, of course, had ceased to be spoken in Middle-earth, in Beleriand, um, after after Thingol's decree. Um, but the Numenorians are still keeping it alive, even though it's a dead language now. Uh, in Middle Earth, and still a dead language in Numenor, um, and yet they're they're still preserving it. And then, of course, there's the uh, that other pivotal moment when the language of the of the elves is ceases to be spoken, and then is in fact banned. Um, that again, of course, is sort of the clearest and most dramatic statement of, uh, you know, that 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 they can make. It's like it's like a, you know when you linguistically declare war, you know, that's really kind of the nuclear option there in a Tolkien story, um, which is why you know what Thingol did was so was so severe. Well, see, this is uh, this is this is very similar. Um, uh, let's see, uh, John, are, are you available to talk? Well, I'd like to start first. It's basically discussing, basically, once again, the early progression of, basically, man into the West. And as we're going along here, 
we see not only a progression, not only from basically from shadow to light, but from basically a set of knowledge which, in its origins, falls not into the realm, I, I believe, of a mere history lesson. The whole way it's being told here is an emulation of the earlier elven texts, and yet it's not so. I, I'm just wondering, from this perspective in the writing, by this stage, is Tolkien referring almost to a, a mortal set of writings? Because I believe I found a footnote in Unfinished Tales referring to something like the Book of the Kings, which in the end it was stating that um, one of the hobbits at the end of the Return of the King was trying to transcribe for their own set of appendices and working on basically a, a way to tell the tale of Numenor in its fullest form. We don't really get um, another external text which um, this section is really referring to as a whole. We don't get basically an illusion like, you know, and here, if you would like to read the fuller and more complete tale, you can go to X, Y, and Z. Um, and I, I find that interesting. I mean, it's called the Akalabeth, the Downfallen. And we get references to like Atalante later on, the Downtrodden. And I, I don't know if that's really, in the end, truly a, a consequence of, you know, there's all the debates whether Tolkien was attempting to emulate Atlantis or not. But regardless, I think, especially when I was doing my own podcast online for the Inklings, going through describing the development of this civilization, which is in itself a civilization. I mentioned how the Valar shut their hearts basically to the men earlier um, who were not of the Adain. But of the Adain themselves, the way they grow and prosper under basically Elros, um, you know, Tarminator, we notice it's not really in such a manner which is completely rural, like almost like the Rohirrim. These are people of populous cities. It's more industrious. There are basically countrysides and vales, of course, in Numenor. I mean, there's force as we get in other texts. But what we don't get as a whole is the idea that there's a lot of wide open country. It, it seems more clustered in cities at certain points. It seems mostly like a metropolis here, a forest there. So the geography is quite different. And I think this is a reflection in the end of their mindset, of their character. Because as they go into basically this, this more western state, it's less like Middle-earth where we have rugged tracts of yet uncharted land. This is land which they come to know well, and it seems smaller as they go along. As the darkening of Numenor might be put it, they feel that this which seems so large to them, this basically Andor, the land of gift, is no longer really a land of gift. It's almost like a prison enclosing them. And just before I, you know, I finally call it wraps, I think that's one comparison to how Feanor basically mentioned how they were cooped up as thralls in a basically narrow country. Uh, basically, the way their dwelling, their habitation, whether temporary, permanent, etc., etc., is perceived, changes from the perception which the shadow or the coming of the shadow has. I'm sorry for jumping ahead, but I think what this does is it sets a new standard for the, the mentality of man here, here in Numenor, which is unlike the earlier progress of the Adani. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that there's... Uh... Yeah, I mean, as, as, as usual, there's so many things that I want to respond to there. Um, I, I think you're certainly right about the shift in their perspective of seeing Numenor as a gift and then later on seeing it as uh, as a prison and them complaining about being hemmed in a narrow space. Um, and But I want to go back to the first thing that you were saying, which I think is uh, 
which I think is a really interesting and important point, and that is we've talked at various points about the elf-centric view of most of the Silmarillion, how these are these are elven stories and elven songs, and that we are we are hearing it sometimes very explicitly. Our attention is being drawn to the fact that this is being told from the elf's um, point of view, and now we have a story which is about humans. Now, as I said, Turin Turambar was that. Um, here, you know, is it possible? What do you guys think? Do you guys think that this is all, that we're are we actually shifting to a human point of view? Because of course, the Numenorians, unlike anybody, any of the rest of them, the Numenorians have survivors into the Third Age. So, from the point of view of the Third Age, when these materials would have been being compiled, like by Bilbo in Rivendell, for instance, um, there are not just the Elven. Uh, People, you know, like so. So there's Bilbo and Rivendell, and he's going to put together. He's going to put together the Silmarillion, which is basically what the Silmarillion is in in essence. Um, but anyway, so here's Bilbo going to put together the Silmarillion, and he's he's gathering it from all of the written rec- from all the written rec- records and all of the the spoken testimony, the living memory uh, that he can access there in Rivendell. Um, he 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 gets he can talk to Celeborn and Galadriel at times. He can talk to Elrond, of course, and many of the other elves who are there. Gildor and his people, cured in the shipwrights people. Um, so you know he's got he's got eyewitnesses of many of the things that happened there in Beleriand in the First Age, as well as written records left over from them. Now, with the Numenorians for the first time, so when we get the stories of, say, of the coming of men to the West, it's obviously not writings of, you know, Beor and his people that were surviving that Bilbo was reading. He was reading reading the elven accounts. He was reading the accounts, you know, like left by Finrod and Nargathrond about when he discovered, uh, you know, that, that, that day that he happened across the camp of Beor and his men. However, the Numenorians not only have survivors, but they were, they had, they have records. Now we're told that most of their records perished. Of course, we don't get most of their learning and most of their, their, their knowledge and science and things, but, but there is memory. There is some retention of the story of Numenor. And I think of course, that it's particularly interesting. If you look at the shape of all of this, Arpharazan is the last king of Numenor. And we read the first half of the Akalabaith for today. And the first half of the whole story gives you the entire history, a summary of the entire history of Numenor right up until the time of the last king. In other words, the time when the survivors of Numenor, Elendil and his sons, are, are, already, are already alive. They're the ones who can transmit the later history, that is, the final years of Numenor, uh, through memory uh, and through written records in Middle Earth, on to the people afterwards in Gondor and in Arnor, many of which records would have been preserved in Rivendell. Therefore, we have at least this possibility that some of the some of the lore from which somebody like Bilbo could compile a history of Numenor could have survived from from Numenor itself, from the human perspective, and not just be, and for the first time, have a not just purely elven-focused record. Now, having at perhaps painful length gone through that, the question is, how does this strike you? Do you, do you buy that? Are there moments here, especially in this first half that we read, that, um, you know, that, that we're talking about tonight, are there places where you can see evidence of 
um, something which is not a purely elven point of view, or uh, you know, or evidence that this is still an elven point of view. What do you think, Jack? Um, well, I think this could be a Numenorean history, as you say, but I think it might also it could also be as told to the elves, um, because remember, there's a it mentions here somewhere that the faithful, just going a bit ahead, that the faithful, some of the faithful were visiting um, Gilgalad. Yes. And I think some were actually exiled up there. So they could have taken the full story um, up until their date anyway up there, and it could have been recorded with um, Gilgalad and, and Elrond. Um, that seems like they would have had a, a more uh, detailed account than what um, um, Erendil would have had when he escaped later on. Elendil, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that, that is certainly possible. I mean, we do know that, as you say, the faithful were, though when the faithful were traveling over there, it tended to be more of a one-way trip. Um, that is, they're, they're fleeing from Numenor and seeking refuge uh, in Middle-earth, um, up in the northern parts of Middle-earth, near where Gilgalad and Elrond were living um, in Círdan. Um So yes, that is true, that we could still have essentially an elvish transmission of this. Um, But again, I think it's conspicuous that we get 2,000 years of history in very summary form. I mean, we get almost nothing of the... We get basically a, a, a catalog of kings with the only major event, the only time we zoom in from this very, the highest, and we've talked about the different narrative levels um, that are used in the Silmarillion, from the the highest of narrative levels, um, you know, the Dunedain became mighty in crafts, so that they had, so that if they had the mind, they could easily have surpassed the kings. Um, But they were become men of peace. Above all arts, they nourished shipbuilding. You know, this is this is this is as far as possible from a really close to the ground detailed description, blow by blow, of something happening. Right. Um, the only time we get anything like that is during the back and forth of the debate between the emissaries of the Valar and the Numenorians when talking about mortality and their desire to go to Valinor. But see, even that is not like, and one day these two guys were standing there and they said, um, this is still a kind of summary. Like, I'm going to give the arguments of both sides and present it as a back and forth Um you know, but it's not, uh, it's, it's even like, we're not told the people, like we don't know the names of who is speaking and some there were who said, and they said among themselves and the Eldar reported these words to the Valar. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's very little, there's one moment, but the King said, but again, so it's even there, it's not a clear narrative level in the latter part of the story. Um, in those last years, when Elendil and the rest of them were there, when the survivors, the the ultimate survivors of Numenor are present, we get much more detail. Um, and we actually do, the narrative level comes much, much closer down to the ground there. Um, so to me, that's, that's, that, that's kind of suggestive, suggestive, but but Jack, I think that you're right, and we do need to remember their the connections of the faithful with the elves. The elves will, in that sense, have at least a kind of a second-hand, uh, you know, memory or knowledge of the earlier events of Numenor. Um, Brandon. Yeah, doesn't it? Another thing, doesn't it? Um, does it not say that this knowledge, that this technical knowledge that the Numenorians had, was actually lost? Um, and it actually says that in the text. I'm trying to find where, but I, I can't. 
can't find it, um, but I'm pretty sure um, it says that this this knowledge was lost. So um, I don't know. Maybe some remnants survived. And I and I I, I, I kind of remember. I wanted to ask you, Corey, if because um, Tolkien did Tolkien have in the idea of an Atlantis, the Numenorians representing a sort of Atlantis like culture that would give gifts to you know that would set up basically human civilization that whole atlantis yes, mythology definitely. yes um, definitely in fact there is a surviving right. note that tolkien wrote to himself when he was writing when he was starting to or trying to write the book called the Last, the lost road um which was going to be his that's the the book that he was trying to write during the famous sort of bet with C.S. Lewis where C.S. Lewis said he would write a space travel book and and uh, Tolkien was supposed to write a time travel book um and Lewis's space travel book of course became uh out of the silent planet um and Tolkien uh characteristically didn't finish his time travel book but he started it and it was called The Lost Road and ultimately The Lost Road was going to be was was involved in the story of Numenor and uh this note that he wrote to himself um it mentions that he's going to quote do the Atlantis myth um and uh so that's that was that was explicitly how he clearly how how he thought of it and how he uh how he how he um uh, talked about it on occasion. Um, so absolutely, he was connecting it uh, very explicitly with the Atlantis story. Um, now, I mean, I think that's a kind of an interesting one. You know, in some ways, uh, it, Shippy in, in several of his books has talked about um, has talked about the um, the ways in which Tolkien really liked to kind of go in and investigate those, you know, like those, those moments that, that should be called asterisk texts. That is like those, those, those unexplained and underdeveloped or, or even inexplicable and unanswerable kinds of questions, those gaps that are there to be filled. Um, and the Atlantis myth is in a really interesting one. Cause on the one hand, it's a really powerful myth and it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a pervasive myth, but it's also kind of an asterisk myth. I mean, there's, there's, there's not nearly as much on that. You know, it's kind of an idea. Um, but there aren't too many story, too many ancient stories about, uh, about Atlantis, not nearly as many as there are different versions of, you know, of, of other kinds of myths. You know, take, for instance, the Cupid and Psyche myth, which C.S. Lewis retells in Till We Have Faces. Um, that's, a, that's a myth which is told and retold many times. Um, we don't, get the full story of Atlantis in the same way. And, you know, and so here Tolkien is kind of get, connecting uh, and contextualizing the Atlantis story here, um, which I think is, which I think is pretty, is pretty cool. But yeah, that's definitely what he's doing. Jack. Yeah, so as long as we're drawing parallels between Numenor and Atlantis, um, am I right in thinking as we go even further West, we have a version of Avalon and then even further we have Elysium. Yep. Yep, exactly. Um, and this becomes pretty unmistakable um, when you get to the names at the very end. Of course, now we're, we're, we're jumping ahead here. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the fact that, as John already mentioned, the um, uh, Akalabeth is called Atalanta in the Elder in Tongue, so you have the explicit connection to uh, to the Atlantis name, and the, also the fact that Tol Erasea is called Avalone. Um, so yes, the Lonely Isle uh, is being explicitly connected to Avalon there as well. So yes, Jack, that, that's exactly right. Um, uh, 
good, good. Um, well, we're kind of jumping dangerously afield here. Um, but let's try to let's see. I don't know because I, I I don't want to skip around so much that we miss too many things here. Um, any before we move on to the debate, uh, anything that I know we've already covered a bunch of things. I'm kind of skimming through the notes of what you guys wanted to talk about, but I don't want to I don't want to miss too much. Before we talk about the ban, I want to talk about the ban. But before we do the ban, does anyone want to uh, bring anything up? Want to make sure we don't miss anything from the establishment of Numenor or life in Numenor? Sort of those earlier those earlier sections, Laura. Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about the temple that they yeah. uh, establish on top of, um, oh. The Mental Tarma, the yeah. The name of the mountain. Yeah, that's it. Uh, yeah, I, I just thought that was interesting that they would raise a temple to Iluvatar when um, when uh, who they have contact with are the Valar. You know, the the elves seem to um, invoke the name of the, the names of the Valar, and they don't really seem to ever mention Iluvatar, but I just thought that was, you know, interesting that they just, they're, you know, they're more monotheistic, I guess, than, than the elves seem to be, and they, and they just have this one temple, and it reminds me of the, um, the temple in Jerusalem, you know, the, the, the one place where you could have sacrifices to God, um, really the, the one place where God was supposed to be, um, and uh, I just thought that that was, um, you know, a, a great uh, kind of a, a step forward, I guess, for for the human race to have this monotheistic um, culture as opposed to um, the more scattered, I suppose, um, uh, pagan cultures that that uh, that uh, they they would have had. So, yeah, that's th- that that I think that is a really great point, and this is very significant because this is the only place we ever get in you know in all of the you know the later history of middle earth in fact anywhere uh in the legendarium this is the only church that we get the only thing that's church like the only temple um that we get um the only place where we see iluvatar being worshiped on earth is here in numenor and i think that that is interesting and a reflection of you know, one way in which the Numenorians are understood to be, in this sense, advanced. Um, that is, that they understand, they they clearly gain an understanding of Iluvatar and of their sort of nature as the children of Iluvatar, um, which later on, which later on people don't clearly have so much. Remember the moment when. Uh, Faramir and his men, before they eat, stand up and face the West in reverence, you know, in what is almost but not quite a prayer before meal um, with Frodo and Sam. And Frodo and Sam are few and all awkward because they don't do anything like that when they eat. They don't have anything that is like prayer. And uh, um, all they have is civility, like, you know, that is, you know, we we, we, we thank our host and then, you know, we... we um, and Faramir's like, yeah, we do that too. Remember, so um, they don't have any sense of religion now. Even the the ritual that Faramir and his men do is still not exp- It's not actually prayer. They're not praying to Iluvatar. They are facing. Uh, they are facing Numenor that was, 
and Elvenholm that is, and that which is beyond Elvenholm and ever shall be, namely Valinor and the Valar. Um, so it is it is an explicit um, moment of reverence towards the Valar, which again even that is rare enough in Middle Earth in the Third Age. Um, but but anyway, they're 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 doing that, and of course we 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 can see even in the exclamation that uh, I forget which one of it is, maybe Moblong makes the Rangers who are guarding Frodo and Sam during the battle with the Southrons during the ambush right after they first well when Faramir first finds them and the and the the Mumak is co- the, is coming towards them and uh, and uh, you know Sam is all excited to see the Oliphant. Um, uh, and they say, oh, you know, Mumak, Mumak, the Valar, turn him aside. You know, the, so again, there's this, there's this clear evidence of memory of the Valar anyway in Gondor, but in Numenor, um, they still have one step beyond that. That is, they haven't yet fallen back even so far as that, and they're worshiping Iluvatar directly, and it's the only time that we see that happening. And again, it's, it's a very interesting testimony to. The, to a kind of cultural development there that that Tolkien does seem to associate um, religious, to is, explicitly religious development um, with the kind of wisdom that the Numenorians gain. Now, this of course makes it the more ironic and bad when the Numenorians lose it. But anyway, um, uh, several of you want to talk, and I'm prattling on. Joe, go ahead. All right. Um, this is only uh, about the children of the Numenorians. I just find it's interesting that um, the children who were born there were born fairer than their fathers. Um, yeah. I understand that the blessings of Valar probably had something to do with that, but it's kind of opposite of what we've seen so far in the books. I mean, usually the first one is the best, and after that, you know, it just kind of like goes downward. Um, and uh, this is almost like a different topic. Um, it makes me wonder why uh, pretty much after, after this age, Arda was given to the men when the elves were truly... Where their home is truly there, and the men are meant to go somewhere else. Uh, I know the elves don't have Arda; they're just mostly Valinor. Um, it just kind of irks me wrong. I mean, maybe the elves ruined their race so much, uh, and they just couldn't find healing, healing, but anywhere else in Valinor, it just doesn't make sense to me. You know, that I think is a really important thing to notice, and um, because that is such a consistent trend, and it's not only an elven trend, we see it among humans as well. Again, back to Faramir. Faramir is talking about how they have fallen away from their Numenorean heritage, and not just like by a sort of a cultural drift, but they are lesser than those who came before. That's the pattern we always see. That's the pattern we always see in everything. Everything is on the decline in Middle-earth. That's That's extremely consistent. And so Joe is right to say, this is an aberration. And of course, the, the the fact that their children are fairer than them, I mean, that might just be, you know, potentially one could say, well, that's sort of a small and local thing. But it points to the fact that the whole Numenorean phenomenon is a, at least a brief reversal of that process. Because clearly, the Numenoreans, you know, when they're when they are going up to the zenith of their bliss, though not yet the zenith, the zenith of their power, those guys, you know, those those men and women alive at that point are in fact greater than their forefathers who came before them, even the heroes of the first age. Um, they are more powerful and more wise and more blessed um, 
and we don't see, you know, like the clock running backwards in that way. The whole trend and pattern of Middle Earth reversed. Um, gravity, it's like gravity reverses itself in Numenor. Um, and that's weird. But that is both, uh, both, again, a testimony to how remarkable this particular blessing by the Valar is. Um, but also, it's a reflection, but, 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 but I think it's, it's, it's important to see um, sort of where that goes. In the end, of course, that reasserts itself. Um, the decline reasserts itself. Um, anyway, uh, Nick, go ahead. Yeah, just a general comment on um, Numenor in general. Um, to me, it seemed that the Valar were acting somewhat like conservationists in their gift of Numenor. Um, you know, a species is threatened by a hostile environment. You take a small number out, repopulate another location. I haven't read much of Morgoth's ring, but I am aware that in it, he is set to disperse his power all over Middle-earth instead of concentrated in the single ring like Sauron. Right. Were the Valar aware of this at the time and the purpose to set up sort of a long-term point of resistance outside of Middle-earth? Were they purposely set up in hopes that they would, you know, undoubtedly travel to Middle Earth at some point and maybe influence the corrupted men in a positive way, or was it simply, as it states in the chapter, a gift? It, it does say that the Valar are aware of quote-unquote seeds of evil um, that were planted by Morgoth. So, is this in reference to what is mentioned in Morgoth's ring, or is it simply that the Valar are, are aware of a lingering presence of evil? It hasn't been very long since Morgoth left the scene. So, just a thought. Yeah, and and there is a sense in which the Numenorians are being actively sheltered from that. Um, but now, I mean, I don't think that the... I mean, is the decline of all things in Middle-earth merely a manifestation of the power of Morgoth? You know, of the evil influence of Morgoth on Middle-earth? Possibly. Possibly. Um, but, But I'm not sure if that is necessary um i'm not sure that is it's you know possibly possibly um and what was were the numenorians intended to have a role um this is actually that provides me an excellent segue towards the ban um were the numenorians meant by the valar as far as we can see is their job to go and be a blessing in middle earth maybe maybe you know the solution to the problem we were seeing before that is the way in which the valar appear to be simply neglecting the men who remain on middle earth um yeah okay their lot is unhappy but who cares they're bad guys remember um is the solution to say oh, no 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 we first we bless the numenorians and then we're going to trust that the numenorians are going to go and bless middle earth is that does that seem right? Does the text seem to support that? Anybody have any thoughts on that? Yeah, Jack, go ahead. Well, I think it certainly um, was playing out that way early on because the uh, the Numenorians were doing that. They were, uh, you know, they took all the learning they took from the Valar, and and as they grew in might, they they used their sailing um, skills. They went out to different parts of Middle Earth, and they and they brought. Uh, they taught those skills and brought agriculture uh, to other and other skills and even says I think somewhere like better ways of living uh, to to the to the other men in Middle Earth. So if that was their plan, I think it was a good one, and but it just didn't uh, carry through. Yeah, and especially since you know, with the ban, we say okay, you cannot sail any further west. 
And so what happens is they go east. And that, as you say, that's a good thing, right? That seems to that seems to pan out well. Um, of course, the 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 relations with Middle Earth, the relations between the Numenorians and the people of Middle Earth, uh, are like the clearest uh, test for the you know they're like the the litmus test for for you know Numenorian virtue, right? The first time they go, as you say, they are they are they they go as teachers and benefactors, and they help to. Uh, they help to elevate everybody else. Um, and then the second time we hear about this interaction, they come essentially as imperialists and lay them under tribute. And then the third time, we don't see it in this first half, we'll talk about it next week, they go as slavers, uh, basically, and bring them for human sacrifices. So, uh, you know, by at that point, you know that uh, things have pretty well gone bad. But, uh, Brandon? Yeah, I was just—I was just gonna say I like uh, Nick's idea and the, the suggestion that um, the Valar um, are kind of trying to get, you know, a rewarding men man, but kind of shipping them off into a, their own place where they kind of—they hope they'll stay and they can reign and all that. Um, it does seem like they're trying to not have them bless Middle Earth as much as, say, the elves. Um, and that I, I always remember the first, the very first description of men that by the elves that they rather resemble Melkor, mm-hmm. and that um, if you recall that, I think I'm this is correct that the that men's destiny is uncertain, um, as opposed to the elves. So they, it could be. It's, I think it's possible that the Valar might see men as a threat, just like the elves kind of might see them as oh, we better cage these animals you know i don't know it's interesting yeah i mean we don't see um now you know maybe they're doing this because they know that the mortals can't handle it but there is not this hey come and live with us as brothers and sisters the way that they do with the elves um even the numenorians they're like okay but yeah but don't come any closer you know um We'll elevate you, but not too far. We'll bring you in. We'll we'll bring you close, but not in. Um, you know, is that because they feel threatened by them? Well, I mean, again, it's it's in their in the debate later on. They're not saying like, well, it's just because you're obviously second class citizens, um, and you guys have to deal with that. I mean, that's not how they approach it. Um, but I think that it's uh, there is. There is obviously a difference, and the relationship with the Valar and, and the men, even the Numenorians, is just not as close. Even though the even though the um, even though the Valar are blessing them so pointedly, there is not the same the same kind of connection established. Even if they can't come and live with them um, because of their mortal natures, there is never the kind of you know there is almost a sense, or at least more of a sense, of the elves and the Valar operating as equals—not exactly as equals, but closer to it—and um, we just never get that at all uh, with with the Numenorean, with even the Numenorians, with with any of the humans. Um, Mike, are you available to talk? Since we're talking about this, you had some uh, some comments on uh, shook off the yoke of the offspring of Morgoth and unlearned their terror of the dark. Did you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, I just like the I like the phrase there. Uh, shook off the yoke and unlearned unlearned their terror of of the dark. I mean, sh- shaking off the yoke to me kind of portrayed the men as somewhat like animals or slaves so they're sort of rising up on their own and coming out of this period of enslavement whether um, 
you know, however, it, however it occurred. And then the second phrase, um, unlearned their, unlearned their terror of the dark. Another phrase I just love and, um, sort of reminded me of, uh, the passage from out of childhood into uh, adulthood and, you know, just two powerful phrases that evoke two powerful images of how the uh, Numenorians were uh, assisting the wilder men who did not benefit from their teaching. So, you know, we're, this is in that higher abstracted mode that you mentioned. But, you know, here or there are throughout are these terrific phrases that evoke, evoke real great uh, imagery that brings the story to life. Yeah, no, I think that that's true. And I think it, it does really sort of sh it builds um some really interesting imagery about what is going on there that what it, what that relationship is like now the the men of middle earth might sometimes call the numenorians gods and mistake them for gods but in fact how we see them acting is like older siblings right or or almost like parents they are not just assisting the men of Middle-earth. They are like helping to bring them to maturity. I mean, I, I like that phrase too, you know, Mike, and I really liked your comments on it. They're like setting, they are liberating the men of Middle-earth from their yokes. So they're setting them free from slavery and they're like helping them to grow up. They're, they're, they're helping them to grow in wisdom. Um, wisdom is what they're said to give them. Um, and that's, um, you know, so again, we can see, and that's sort of the anti, the anti-imperialist, Numenorians, when they are, you know, far from establishing their own empire, far from subjugating anybody, they are freeing them from subjugation uh, and helping them to 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 develop wisdom. Was that the strategy? Was that the plan? Was what was that? Was that what the Valar were going for? Well, I don't know. We don't know. We're not told. Um, certainly, the band did make them go east, but uh, but you know, in some ways, you can see. Here's another question I have: Is this the Penchant for the Numenorians towards sailing and seagoing exploration. Is that a bad thing? What do you think? Is that good or bad? I mean, obviously, their, their voyages become worse later on. And just as obviously, their first voyages aren't obviously wicked. But I'm not sure that it's entirely comfortable from the very beginning. Dave? Well, great. I was just about to chime in and say that I thought it was a good thing, and you set me up and just pointed out that it's probably bad. So now I look terrible. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think it's fine. Go ahead. I'm, I'm, I, 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 I honestly don't have my mind. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Well, I want to, I want to, I want to compare their love of sailing with their love of the earth. Um, in the fact that, that somebody points this out, you know, during the debate. When they're saying, um, um, uh, you know, hey, we love the Earth, um, and and the messengers from the West say, well, that's not a bad thing, you know, like uh, Louvatar put that in your heart for a reason. In and of itself, that's not a bad thing, mm -hmm. but it, it ultimately it ends up being part of their downfall. Same thing with the sailing, I think, like. Like, it's there for a reason, you know? Like, it, this isn't the corruption of Morgoth that causes them to love sailing around the world. Um, and so maybe maybe in and of itself it's a good thing, or at least not a bad thing, but it becomes corrupted, you know? I mean, that, that, that their love of sailing, when it's simply a love of sailing, um, is fine. Uh, and, and it certainly seems natural. After all, they're descended from the greatest mariner ever. But then when, when sailing becomes not simply something they do for love, but when they're sailing around the world to conquer it, 
And when they start thinking of themselves as, as um, we're these great mariners and we have conquered the seas, you hear that in, their, in the debate with the, you know, when they start murmuring, um, you know, why shouldn't we sail to the west? We've conquered all the seas, forgetting that probably there's some part of their success in sailing that's due to the fact that they live in accord with Ulmo and, and things like that. Yeah. They forget that, you know, um, uh, that there's a lot of other factors other than their great ships and their prowess. So I, I don't think it's bad in and of itself initially, but, it, but, but I think the the sort of um, the, the, the looming danger or the uncomfortableness that you see at the beginning, I think, I think that's true too. I think that in, in their love is the seed of their downfall. Um, just the same way, I mean, you, you know, you could make the same argument about their love of Arda. They shouldn't love the earth, you know, like, because they end up loving the earth so much they don't want to leave it. And that's against their very being. Yeah. But the people out of the West say, no, 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 no. It's a good thing that you love the earth. You should love the earth. You know, Luvatar has a, there's a reason for that. We don't know what it is. We don't really understand anything having to do with you, but we know this much. We know he doesn't do things for no reason. And so if you love the earth, there's a reason for it, but be very, very careful because you can love it too much. So maybe they're maybe like the same thing with the love of sailing. Their sailing is like the Silmarils. <laughs> in and of itself, it's not evil, and it starts out really great and beautiful, but in the end, it's destruction and down. Yes, except except it's not like <laughs> right. No, that's I, I think that that's 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 a good parallel. I mean, everything, all of these good things. I mean, that they they are like no bad thing is nothing is evil in the beginning, right? I mean, everything is is sort of a corruption of these of these good things. Um, clearly, you can see one can imagine the adventurousness, the desire to explore. Um, you know, the pleasure in these voyages and explorations and discovery of, uh, you know, new and wondrous things, even to the final glimpsing of the gates of the morning and all that, that these things are good things. Um, but yet you can see them being tied up and reflected in the downfall from the, uh, very, very quickly. And I think, you know, to, to Jordan's point, the Silmarils, yeah, they're not bad. There's nothing evil. There's nothing intrinsically evil about the Silmarils. They're not malicious. They're not. They they don't corrupt you themselves like the like the Ring, but um, but the desire for them can easily become corrupted and almost almost invariably becomes corrupted whenever anybody really wants them, which almost everybody who sees them does. Um, Mike, you wanted to say something before. I think uh, Dave and Jordan made the point. Uh, it's, you know, one of the themes of the book is um, to what extent is sub-creation uh, a, a hazard? And uh, I think your question might be also phrased as, you know, is is there exploratory impulse a type of sub-creation? And if it is, is it hazardous? And you know, it can be hazardous. And like, as you said, the impulse to explore in and of itself is not good or bad, but when you discover that you are the most powerful beings in the world and people will treat you like gods, you now need to be careful about what you do with that information and how uh, and how people may attempt to manipulate that, that you know, your knowledge of that. And so, uh, you know, igno their ignorance of what the wider world was like was kind of like a you know, protected them, and the, but they were possessed of this exploratory impulse in the same way that 
Feanor had this impulse to create, and then once you've stepped over that line, uh, your intentions then, or your intentions become important, and how you respond to the thing you've sub-created or the wider world you've discovered, uh, it becomes a high-stakes venture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that connection between subcreation and exploration there is uh, is I, 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 is I think a very suggestive one. Joe, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, them sailing is like I mean, it's like they're exploring, but it's almost like they're searching. I mean, uh, we know that their home is not in Middle Earth, and it's like a you know they're out searching and looking. It's like okay, we're feeling something, but we can't quite place it. And I think the closest they can come to that eventually is uh, Jordan. No, <laughs> is um <laughs> is over in Valinor, but uh it's I also think that that temple may have been placed there to help quench that search as well. It's like I mean we it's like uh, Louis was saying I know your home isn't here, so here's this temple. I mean you guys can come to this when you guys are uh, like kind of searching or I mean it's like they didn't really pay attention to it or look at it as that, but I mean it's just uh I mean this isn't their home and I mean mm-hmm. I think them sailing is you know I mean it's part of their subcreation, but it's also just a uh, kind of them searching even though they're really what they have is like at their home. It's already there. It's what they need. Yeah. You know, I think that that's a really cool point because, um, and I think is, is a really wonderful way of illustrating both the danger and the good thing about their exploration. On the one hand, you can say, you know, to me, one of the warning signs about their exploration is that they don't start going on their voyages of exploration until they're grumpy about the ban. Thus it was that because of the ban of the Valar, the voyages of the Dunedain in those days went ever eastward and not westward, from the darkness of the north to the hearts of the south and beyond the south into the nether darkness. They're ex- they're exp- they really, really want to go west, but since they can't go west, they'll go east instead. Um, so basically, it seems to have its root in restlessness and in discontent, thinking back to the point that John made uh, a while back about their delight in the land of gift becoming, um, you know, feeling like they're in that, that now that they're in prison instead of paradise, even though it's the same. Um, so, I mean, I think they're, they're, they're restless and they're discontent. They, they have a, they have, they've made an island paradise, um, but they're not content there. And so they keep exploring. So that seems like a really bad thing, but thinking about what, what Joe was just reminding us of in part, they're not supposed to be content. If they were completely content and we're just saying like, hey, yeah, this is paradise. We've got everything we could ever need. This is the ultimate destiny of us as a human. But it isn't the ultimate, their ultimate destiny. It's, they should be discontented. They should be wandering because this isn't their home. Numenor isn't their home. It's not, you know, elven home they can see. That's elven home. But this isn't human home. Human home is outside the circles of the world. Uh, so their restlessness is inescapable. And in fact, in that sense, a really good thing. Anyway, uh, uh, Laura, I probably... Uh, oh, Joe stole your thunder. We, phew, good, I feel better. At least it wasn't me. Um, but Laura, I'll go ahead and let you talk again anyway here. Actually, I thought of something a little bit different. Um so then is it a good idea for the Valar to sort of, um, I mean, it's almost like they're trapping the Numenorians on this island out in the middle of the ocean. Um, you know, they, it's almost like what they did with the elves when they brought them over to, uh, to, um, 
to Valinor. Um, you know, they're sort of saying, okay, this we've made this great spot for you, and it's perfect, and you should be really content here. But, I mean, they're kind of overstepping their bounds a little bit because, um, you know, the, the mortals especially can't really be content to stay on this little island in, in the middle of the ocean. They really want to roam all of Middle Earth. So, so maybe it was a mistake for the Valar to do that. I, it's a really good point. I mean, it's... I mean, they've given this extraordinary blessing to the men, but it does seem like an appropriate question to ask. Is that a short-sighted gift? I mean, are they really supposed to be happy, happy, like just staying and separated on this little island? Maybe. I mean, but I, I mean, I think it's a good, it's, it's certainly a question worth asking. Dave? I, I sort of had a, a variant of that comment. Um, uh, I think that's an excellent point. I'm not convinced that leaving them in Middle Earth would have resulted in a different um, uh, uh, result. Indeed, I'm wondering if this, if the end result, and I guess we're, we really are, we keep jumping ahead to the end. We like we're, everything, every comment we make is presupposing the ending, which technically I, maybe we shouldn't do. But well, the I'm kind of wondering. I'm kind of wondering if this specific set of events that occur that I won't elucidate on in case someone hasn't read that far are inevitable. I mean, there seems to be a fundamental contradiction or paradox in men's being that that they are inevitably going to overstep any bounds that anyone puts on them, you know? Like, what did the Valor really think was going to happen when they said, by the way, don't, don't sail over here to the West? And, and, and throughout this thing... There's this continual, even when we're first introduced to men, we're told that they came wandering out of the east because they heard that there was a light in the west that the, that the shadow could not dim. And there's this continual yearning toward the west. And, I mean, it almost seems like they're doomed to, you know, like, like, the, like they don't stand a chance. Like, like it's kind of sucks because it's like, you know, like, we're going to, Iluvatar sets in their hearts this yearning for the West, for the good, loving the Earth, all these things, and yet you're not supposed to have that. You're not supposed to stay in the world. You're not supposed to sail to the West. Um, you can't handle it. It's not for you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet we're told it's a good thing. I mean, it's like they never, like, they were they were set up to fail. Um, uh, they were, uh, you know, like, I'm so I'm wondering, I mean, is this is their fate here inevitable? I'm sure we're not supposed to assume that. I'm sure we're supposed to. There's supposed to be some platitude about choice and free will that they exercise. But fine, uh, they had free will. But the circumstances under which they're exercising their free will are pretty crappy because <laughs> they are they they're given a a, a band that they absolutely cannot. Um, they're absolutely not supposed to violate. And then they're given a relentless desire to violate it. And then we're furthermore told that their desire to violate it is actually rooted in a good desire. You should desire the West. Well, that's, I mean, that sucks. How are they ever supposed to actually not screw up? Right. What does winning look like, right? What does doing the right thing look like? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's there's one step in there. Uh, Joe, did you want to, um, are, are you going to comment uh, on Dave's point uh, explicitly, or did you want to make a separate point? No, it's it's Dave's. I mean, it goes along with what Dave. I mean, uh, okay, go ahead. I think part of why the why they just can't do anything right is, I mean, it also involves the Valor not being omniscient. I mean, they don't know exactly what to do either. Even though they think they're doing something well, I mean, they don't know everything either. 
So I, I think that's just something else that, has, that involves them not being able to... Yes. Well, I think, uh, in the same point here, if the Valar don't want the men to come west, why do they let the elves go east that are in Valinor? Like, elves go and visit them in Numenor. Shouldn't the ban be applied to them as well? Like, the elves come out and they're like, hey, look at these great things we're bringing you. We're bringing you the most amazing, beautiful birds, and we're coming on ships that don't sail. They just kind of fly out here. It's the best place ever. Don't come out here. Like, what are the Valar thinking? Like, surely the ban should be applied both ways. You can't go east. They can't go west once you come back. Right. And, you know, to uh, uh, fulfill... Uh, Dave's prophecy and continue to make references to the second half of the story and every comment that we make. Uh, that's, of course, what where we're going to end up down the road. Um, so it is kind of interesting that uh, at the end of the day, that is in fact exactly the place where we're going to get to. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think. But the Valor thought that was a blessing. They what? Sorry. The Valor thought that was going to be a blessing, letting them do that, which is part of them not being omniscient. Because like, oh yeah, go bring them like flowers and all kinds of birds and nice, cool things like that. I mean, I mean, it's part of them not being omniscient. It's like, oh yeah, here's all this awesome stuff. I mean, right. just like Jordan said, I'm just continuing on Jordan's point here. But, but I'm not convinced. All right, if you give someone a good gift, and your intentions are good, and the gift itself is a blessing, and that person abuses the gift or exploits the gift or, uh, you know, kind of becomes through their own choices and relationships with it, you know, corrupted by it. Is that your fault? You know, is it your job to say like, well, this gift could be taken in the wrong way or could, you know, they could, they could, uh, become desirous of, uh, they could really start wanting immortality and become become you know unhappy with their lot as humans if we do this, so we shouldn't do it. I mean, no, but suppose you bought a really really fancy bottle of wine and gave it to your friend whose husband happens to be a recovering alcoholic. <laughs> uh, you might be held responsible for for the outcome of that. Yeah, that's an interesting parallel. Like the. The Numenorians as like mankind recovering from alcoholism, maybe, maybe, but it's not exactly like they're relapsing. Um, no, but you know what I mean. Like, they, there's just there's this fundamental problem in their nature, and, and maybe we can, maybe what we maybe part of the reason we can't we shouldn't blame the Valar too much um, is the fact that they. They don't actually. I think they don't actually understand man's being. I think that the things that the messenger is saying are they're they're reciting platitudes, but I think they are fundamentally perplexed by men and men's destiny. Um, and and my comments about sort of the inevitability of the outcome have less to do with like maybe trying to place blame on the Valar or maybe that this or that shouldn't have done, been done. But I'm just wondering if if Tolkien is setting up a story with an with an inevitable conclusion. And if if he's hinting at something about sort of met, you know this perpetual fall that men appear to be continually undergoing, you know there's this hint that there was a fall out in the east eastern parts of Middle Earth when they first woke up, and then they some of them come out west and they're redeemed and they fight um, uh, uh, 
um, you know, Morgoth, and they end up getting rewarded, and they get better, and then they fall again in Numenor, but some of the good ones manage to get out of there, and they go to Middle-earth, and they fight the good fight there, and then what do we see with Boromir, you know, one of the descendants of Numenor, yet another fall, and there seems to be just this perpetual cycle of falls with men. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that we certainly can see that happening, but again, is it actually inevitable um maybe but i don't n- I, I maybe maybe it is um with the numenorians because the numenorians are still if if we are to understand as there are these hints um hints through the silmarillion in several places much more explicit reference um in the debate between Andreth and Finrod in Morgoth's Ring, that there it, there was in fact a a Garden of Eden esque fall of man uh, back at the beginning. Um, you know, if we are to understand that, then we then we know that in that theological sense, the Numenorians are already fallen, and in that sense, the fall of their uh, the fall of their civilization is indeed inevitable. But um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jack, go ahead. You've been you've been patient here. I'll let you jump in on this. Well, I'd like just to point out that you know let's remember that this whole go west business, which was started by the Velar, was probably a mistake to begin with. But now that it's just been around for so long, it's it's like something you get started and it, it, you can't stop it. Now it's now it's woven into Middle Earth, and and anything that's coming from that fundamental mistake isn't going to bear something good. So it's like they're stuck with it. Maybe. That's a really interesting point. And I, I think that I, I, I can see what you're saying. And certainly this reminds me of, uh, of Jason's comment about the Valar doubling down after the War of Wrath and being like, hey, let's invite them all back to Valinor again, since that worked out so well the first time. Um, uh, you know, we talked the, you know then about the, the, some of the differences there. But one thing that I would like to point out, and you're reminding me also, Jack, of something that I had wanted to say about the point that Dave was making earlier. The desire for the West in men is not is not exactly the same fundamental desire. The desire that Iluvatar has put in their hearts is a discontent with this world because this world is not their home. Their home ultimately is beyond the circles of the world. Not in the West, but beyond the circles of the world. In the West lives the closest reflection of it that exists in the world, um, but it still isn't the thing. Not for humans. That's not their home. That's not their ultimate destiny. Um, And remember, when we had the westward migration of the humans at the beginning, um, when the Adain come into Beleriand in the first place, they're not called by the Valar. They don't know anything about the Valar, and it doesn't explicitly have anything to do with the invitation to the elves, they are drawn to the West because they've heard that there's light in the West, and they are fleeing from the darkness, and they are seeking an alternative to the darkness. So in that sense, I think that you can say that it is tied to a kind of an instinctive desire, but I think that it is not simply the same desire as the desire that that Iluvatar puts in them to seek that which is beyond the circles of the world. Um, I think that's not exactly the same thing. But, uh, sorry, uh, Laura, go ahead. What were you wanting to talk about there? Oh, I'm 
I'm afraid I'm skipping ahead a little bit because I wanted to bring up something that was in the debate of Valinor and the Numenorians. Um, the, the one line that says, and you are punished for the rebellion of men, you say, in which you had small part. What is the rebellion of men that they're talking about there? Is, is, that, um, is that a reference to this, this fall um, that we really don't know that much about um, in, in the very beginning? Um, yeah, or is I it a reference to, to later events in, in the War of Wrath when so many men fought on the side of Morgoth? Yes, yes. That, I think, is what it's referring to. I don't think it's referring back to the, back to the prehistoric fall. Um, anyway, certainly prehistoric in, in, in Middle-earth terms. Um, well, because it, it goes on to say, um, and so it is that you die. And you are punished for the rebellion of men, you say, in which you had small part, and so it is that you die. That's what made me think maybe it's maybe it is a reference to that that you know that primal fall back in the in the dawn of time, and not really um, the war of wrath, because men obviously died before before the war of wrath. Right, right. So, but I think yeah. that they're they are seeing this as. Um, the point that the 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 elves or anyway the representatives of the Valar there are making is that it's not a punishment, and that the Numenorians are being they have made a false argument in paralleling the rebellion of the Noldor with the rebellion. You know, basically, they're saying, well, look, actually, if you'll remember, we're better than the, than the Noldor. Right, the Noldor get to live in Valinor. The Noldor get eternal life, and yet they were rebels. We weren't rebels. In fact, we, you know, like voluntarily enlisted on the side of the good guys and suffered not because we deserved it, like the Noldor deserved it, um, but and it, you know, but just like because we were fighting with the good guys, and yeah, you know, yeah. and 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 yet, look, the Noldor, you know, they get forgiven and they get brought over, and we don't. That's not fair. Um, and so what they're responding to there is to say, you know, look, look, this you're you're totally missing the point of all of this. Um, there, the the eternal life of the Noldor is neither reward nor punishment. I mean, it's just the fulfillment of their being. Um, but but I agree with you that concept of death and punishment. The point that the elves are going on to make there is to say, no, it's like that death is the gift of Iluvatar. It is not a punishment. Um, and um, and you Numenorians are forgetting that. You are forgetting that death is supposed to be a good thing. That death is supposed to be that final fulfillment. Is the if there's is there something that that satisfies that desire which uh of which that desire for the light in the West is kind of a reflection or or a or a picture of that? Um you know, a, 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 a way for them indirectly to try to satisfy that desire? Well, no, no, death is the final. Are they voyaging around? Are they exploring? Are they, are they going out? Are they rest because they're restless in their, in their, in their island because they're supposed to be restless because their home is not here. And so they're, they're off wandering. Well, death is what takes them to their final home. So certainly one of the major points there in the debate is that this is they're they're really they're really entirely missing the point but i want to i want to i want to spend a little more time there i want to i want to go through the debate a little bit more carefully because i think the debate is very uh um i think that i think that the debate is very revealing this is on page 264 here okay so we start with we start with 
not a debate, um, which I think is is interesting in themselves. That is, how this debate starts is not the Numenorians like sending a petition over to Valinor. Um, Dear Manwe, uh, would you please consider relieving uh, uh, us from the responsibility of obeying the ban because we really, really want to come to Valinor at least to visit? Uh, Love and smooches the Numenorians. Like, we don't get that. Instead, we get them just grumbling among themselves. Why do the lords, you know, and they said among themselves, why do the lords of the West sit there in peace unending? So notice, they're not only not addressing this to Manway, they're talking about him behind his back, right? Now, of course, he's listening, but um, they're talking about him behind his back, or at least his spies are listening. Why do the lords of the West sit there in peace unending, while we must die and go we know not whither, leaving our home and all that we have made? And the Eldar die not, even those that rebelled against the lords. And since we have mastered all seas, and no water is so wild or so wide that our ships cannot overcome it, why should we not go to Avalone, and there greet our friends? And some there were who said, Why should we not go even to Amman, and taste there were it but for a day the bliss of the powers? Have we not become mighty among the people of Arda? Now, it, it is close reading time as we go through the, as we go through the debate here. What is the problem? In those two paragraphs, uh, let's do some diagnosis here. What is wrong with the Numenorians? What, where are the moments? Show me the red flags. Laura? Well, actually, I have a question. Um, could the Numenorians go to, go to Avalone? Would they be allowed? Because, I mean, technically, that's not really part of Amman. That was part of uh, Middle Earth that got pulled over the sea. Um, I mean, the, the red flag is that they're not even happy going there. You know, all of a sudden they're, they're saying, oh, we could go there, but why stop there? You know, we can go to Amman, you know, so, so what is there to stop them from going all the way to, to Valinor? But yeah. I was just wondering about that. Can, could they go to Avalon if, if they had wanted to? Would they be allowed to do that? No, the ban says they can't go further away from Numenor than they can see it. From, like they can't go out of sight of Numenor, so you take. But can't they? Can't they see Avalone from Numenor? Uh, yes, but only from the Mental Tarma. They can't see it. Oh. Like they, 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 they have to be able to see it. Like when they're on their ships, from they have ship? to be able to see Numenor. Ah, uh, okay. Not from the mountaintop. Um, okay. Because then you could say like, well, we'll just go all the way to Valinor, and then we'll get a really powerful telescope, and we'll be able to see Numenor from there. <laughs> <laughs> right, um, and presumably, from what we understand, the Numenorians could probably have constructed very powerful telescopes. I'm sure they could have. Um, so, uh, uh, but but yeah, no, that it's it's you know that that you can't you can't get out of range of Numenor itself is the uh, sort of the terms of the ban. Um, but uh, uh, okay, got, got more. Chris, go ahead. Do you want? Did you have a? You wanted to point out some of the red flags there in those paragraphs. Uh, yeah, the one where they talk about going to Avalone <clears throat> to greet their friends, that sounds like a rationalization that just <laughs> jumped off the page at me. It doesn't sound, that's not why they want to go there and meet their friends. Yes, yes. No, no, it's not exactly. I mean, I think that is certainly a rationalization. Um, yeah, we just want to, we just want to hang out with our friends. Oh, you mean the ones who come to visit you all the, well, yeah, yeah. True. Um, I guess actually it's not really a good reason to break the ban, is it? But no, exactly. That is a very clear, a very clear rationalization. Um, good, good. What yeah, else? they should have just said, we want to go see all the pretty birds that they keep bringing <laughs> Exactly. Up. We hear there are some really great uh, fauna and flora, and we want to see it for ourselves. Purely scientific interest. Mike? The first sentence there, is that a red flag where the speaker 
uh, notes that I don't want to be forced to leave my home. Yes. And one of the cruxes of, of the rules is you have to have faith that this is not ultimately your home. And the person who's speaking there does not believe that. So, red flag. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, especially, note, though it's not explicitly stated, note the implicit contrast between, on the one hand, the peace unending in which the Lords of the West sit, and, on the other hand, we must die and we go not whither. And it seems like an uneven comparison. You've got peace on the one hand and uncertainty, or, or uh, you know, it's, it's but it's not it's not compa- com- contrasting certainty with uncertainty. It's contrasting s- uncertainty with peace, right? The problem is that they are not at peace with not knowing uh, where they go, um, and they are were you know so that, that I think is that I think is 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 a really interesting element of that, Dave. Um. I don't remember why I raised my hand. <laughs> we were talking about red flags. Um, the, actually, I can I can make one up on the spot. The one that always jumps out at me is the comment about their um, uh, their prowess in sailing ships. I don't. Maybe somebody covered this already. Um, uh, their prowess about sailing ships, where they say we've conquered all seas. Um, I mentioned this a little earlier. That 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 really sticks with me because I mean that's pretty clear. There's that that's some clear um, uh, pride going on there, some sort of uh, loving too much the work of your own hands kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, the usual usual sort of like you know very similar to fan or like, hey, look at these beautiful shining silmarils I made filled with all this light. Yeah, you didn't make the light, fan, or you took the light from something else that someone else made. In this case, look at us sailing around the world, no problem. You know. Um, uh, <laughs> There are these Valar that are actually pretty instrumental in making sure that people on the ocean don't, uh, you know, their ships don't get destroyed or swallowed up in a giant um, um, uh, maelstrom and things like that. And they don't, you know, it seems like the proper attitude would be gratitude for for wonderful seas and and smooth sailing. But no, they think that they that they've conquered the world and conquered the oceans, which seems pretty wrong and a pretty prideful thing to think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they are certainly just forgetting. Um, and I, too, it makes me think of Thanor, too. You know, remember this specific line where it says that, you know, he rarely remembered that the light of them was not his own. Right. And you could see oh, they are the Numenorians here have clearly forgotten that their 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 prowess in sailing is not their own, is not due to themselves. But, but I mean, stepping back from that point to just seeing it in the slightly bigger picture, what they're saying here is we should go to Valinor because we deserve it, because we are mighty among the, um, um, among the people of Arda. Um, we deserve immortality. We deserve to be, you know, we and the Valar were, you know, we're peers. We're peers. So it's unjust. It's not fair that we shouldn't have to stay out. And yeah, that's, that's, that's a, that's a pretty clear uh, red flag with the whole pride thing. Um, so then we get the response. So response number one, uh, he sends, uh, uh, Manway sends some, uh, some messengers to the Dunedain, speaking earnestly to the king and all who would listen. The doom of the, <clears throat> the, doom of the world, they said, one alone can change who made it. Uh, an interesting reminder, of course, we've been talking about the Valar and what they did and everything, and we're being reminded they're operating within the system. They can't change the system. Even if they are briefly 
turning the clock back in or in in Numenor, reversing gravity in Numenor, uh, they can't change the system. One alone can change who made it. And were you and were you so to voyage that escaping all deceits and snares, you came indeed to Amon, the blessed realm, little would it profit you, for it is not the land of Manway that makes its people deathless, but the deathless that dwell therein have hallowed the land, and there you would but wither and grow weary the sooner, as moths in a light too strong and steadfast. But the king said, And does not Eärendil, my forefather, live? Or is he not in the land of Amon? To which they answered, You know that he has a fate apart, and was adjudged to the firstborn who die not. Yet this also is his doom, that he can never return again to mortal lands. See, there you go, Jordan. Whereas you and your people are not of the firstborn, but are mortal men as Iluvatar made you, yet it seems that you desire now to have the good of both kindreds, to sail to Valinor when you will, and to return when you please to your homes. That cannot be. Nor can the Valar take away the gifts of Iluvatar. And uh, we talked about the, this, you know, this is where he goes on to spell out about the the death as not being a punishment thing. Um, uh, though I would like to emphasize where he ends up. Um, Thus you escape and leave the world and are not bound to it in hope or in weariness. Which of us, therefore, should envy the others? Now, what strikes you as particularly interesting about the response here? Um, and we get the one more, the one other step in the Numenorean side of the argument, um, that is uh, the business about Eärendil that the king brings up. Joe. Well, uh, this is more of a kind of almost poking fun at the Numenoreans. I mean, it's just a. Uh, I mean, you can see their pride working. They get an answer. They just don't want to hear it. <laughs> I mean, it's like you know. They kind of ask a question, and they get a really good answer that fully explains it, and they don't even respond to it. They're just like, well, here's another question. And it's just like, okay, here's the answer. Nope, ignoring it. Not listening. Uh, right. just, they, they don't want to hear the answer that they're getting. I mean, it's just, uh, I mean, this is part of their pride working, and uh, just like they have earplugs in their ears, so they can't really hear an answer. They just keep talking. Yeah, the Aorendo argument is a really weak one, isn't it? And I mean, and as you say, it's like they're not really listening at all. Um, you know, they're trying to explain, the messengers are trying to explain, look, what if what you really want is immortality, people, first of all, you shouldn't want immortality. No, second of all, you shouldn't want immortality. First of all, it's not going to work, people. You're, if you get to Valinor, it's not going to make you immortal. Um so first of all, you're just you're 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 wrong. You're you misunderstand how this works. But now, second of all, neither of us should envy the others. You shouldn't really be wanting it like this in the first in in the first place. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, Joe, as you say, clearly the response there shows they're not really tracking here. Laura. Yeah. Um, so they respond with, uh, "For for of us is required a blind trust and a hope without assurance, knowing not what lies before us in a little while." Well, it's not exactly blind trust because, you know, they're. They're they're talking to the Valar right now. You know they t they're talking to these immortal beings, who yes maybe maybe not be able to change things, but they do. You know they have aligned to Iluvatar, and so they you know they kind of know how things work, and you know it it just seems like if if you you know if I had a, a godlike creature come down and tell me you know I'm gonna I'm gonna go to my true home after my after I die, I'd be like okay that sounds great. You know, I mean, they, they're really, they're they're really fighting against it almost. Mm -hmm. You know, they're they're just they're just determined not to have any faith. They, you know, they're so proud 
and and they want to hold on so much to what they have that they just can't even you know can't even let this into themselves anymore. So um, it's it's really it's really tragic actually what happens with the Numenorians. I um, I don't know. I wanted to hear I wanted to hear more about the um, the height of the bliss in, in Numenor. I I really wish he hadn't glossed over that because I think that would have been pretty cool. And and their downfall is is really tragic. Yeah, yeah, it is really interesting that we we get so much more not only about the downfall but about the bad things. I mean, you know, because I agree with you, Laura. You know, it's like could we just have gotten one more paragraph about the bliss? You know, could we have just gotten a little bit? You know, can you give us a little bit more description of what was good about Numenorean society when it was great, um, and about their learning and about all these other things? But we're told it's lost, right? The uh, all the good stuff gets lost, and the memory of the of the evil that they did remains, um, and that is part of the tragedy. That's part of the tragedy of Arda Mart. I mean, that's 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 sort of the big problem. Um, hey, so I'm I'm going to jump in. Yep. Um, I wanted to add something to what Laura said. I don't I don't strictly disagree with what Laura said, but I want to add a nuance because I don't think it's as simple as why is it so hard for them to have faith? There's the Valar. The Valar are these godlike beings, and they reassure them. First of all, do the men, or at least these particular men, they never actually see the Valar. They get elves coming out of the West telling them about the lords of the West. Um, but beyond that, the reassurance that the Valar give them is not particularly useful. They're not saying when they say, you know, hey, your home's not here. Your home, you'll go to it after you die. Um, okay, tell me about that home, Valar. Uh, we don't actually know anything about it. We actually know nothing about your fate. Uh, only we know, like, this one simple fact that you have to die. There's no choice. That's your essential being, and you're going to go someplace that's not here. We heard it's pretty good from Iluvatar, but we don't actually know anything about it. I mean, godlike beings or not, that's not very comforting. That's like virtually no information. That would do zero to to reassure my um, my any uncertainty or worry that I might have. Um, and so, you know, like in a way, I think men are called to. I, I think this is. I, I I would just like to say this is my very most favorite chapter of the entire book. Um, I I think there's so much interesting stuff going on here. And I think there's so many unresolvable conflicts and contradictions in, in men's essential nature and their being. Um, uh, and, um, and, and I think that there's so much that we can read and sympathize with, with the plight of the Numenorians, and it really is tragic. Because they are, in a way, they're sort of called to a higher, a, a, a more difficult kind of faith than the elves are. Because at the end of the day, they really do have a hope without reassurance. Now, that's not to let them off the hook. They should they should persist in that hope. But, but they really have no nothing to hold on to, right? Like, they literally, like, hey, you're going to die, and, well, <laughs> good luck. We're not even going to see you. We don't know anything about it. And, you know, they, the Valar, the messengers from the Valar specifically say, your fate has not been revealed to us, and it won't be. It's going to be revealed to you after you die. You'll know more about your, your eventual fate than we do at this point. That's not a lot of reassurance or information. And I'd just like to point out that just like in the Battle of Wrath, Manway once again sits on the sidelines staying in Valinor when clearly he should have come out and gotten involved, but he just doesn't like to leave his little home. <laughs> well, Tinequatilla is a really nice place. I mean, he's got a sweet mountain over there, and... Um, yeah, 
I think that certainly Dave is right that there is some force. I think the best argument, it's clearly the best ar- argument that the Numenorians make. Now, the rest of their arguments are often not very good, as we've seen up to this point. But for, uh, for of us is required a blind trust and a hope without assurance, knowing not what lies before us in a little while. Dave is right to say that, that uh, basically the Valar don't disagree. I mean, the messengers are like, um, well, yes, yes, we don't know anything about exactly what your fate is. But there is one thing that they do know, and that is it's the, that fate that you have is from Iluvatar. And the Numenorians, the Numenorians of all people, you know, those people who have built the temple, the only temple to Iluvatar that exists in Middle-earth in the whole first three ages of Middle-earth, um, the Numenorians should understand that. That is enough to base. It's not exactly a hope without assurance. It's a hope without certainty. They are, in fact, being given an assurance, not a certainty of what's going to happen, not certain knowledge of what's going to uh, what's going to occur, occur, but they do have a they do have an assurance. They're not satisfied with that assurance, but they do have that that it comes from Iluvatar, and that Iluvatar is good. Um, but the the last thing that I would uh, want to oh, wait, uh, uh, Laura, did you want to respond again? Yeah, I just wanted to point out that um, the elves, you know, their their ultimate fate is also in, uncertain. That the Valar don't know what's going to happen after uh, Arda is is no more, and uh, and I'm not sure the Valar even know um, what what their fate is beyond uh, Arda. You know, that that's all going to be up to Iluvatar. So, so you know, in one way, the elves also uh, don't have an assurance. I mean, it's further off in the future. Um, it's at the the end of time, basically, but but ultimately, it, it they lead to the same place. You know, they they both end in uncertainty. So I just wanted to to point that out. And which of us should envy the other? No, I I think that that's a good that's a good point. If anything, the elves have less ultimate assurance um, than 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 the humans do. Um, the last thing that I wanted to uh, to uh, to end with here at the end of the debate. Is the final, uh, the final urging, the final, uh, the final. Not well. I guess beware is a command. The final command of the Valar there. Beware, the will of Eru may not be gainsaid, and the Valar bid you earnestly not to withhold the trust to which you are called, lest soon it become again a bond by which you are constrained. Hope rather that in the end even the least of your desires shall have fruit. The love of Arda was set in your hearts by Iluvatar, and he does not plant to no purpose. Nonetheless, many ages of men unborn may pass ere that purpose is made known, and to you it will be revealed, and not to the Valar. Now, my question. My question is simply, what the heck does that mean? Um, does anyone get this, or get parts of this? What exactly are they being told here? Laura? Well, they're being told that uh, they're going to be they're going to be in on some things that the Valar aren't in on, which makes them very special. Um, right. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a cryptic statement. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I mean, how does, how did, how did the Valar know this much, you know, that, that, uh, the purpose is going to be made known, but, but the Valar aren't going to know it. Only, only men are know it. Only men are going to know it. So that shows that men are, 
you know, a little bit outside. I mean, they're they're basically outside Arda. Valar, the Valar and the Elves are really tied down to Arda, but Men's ultimate fate is beyond Arda. So, so the Numenorians should feel pretty special, but I guess it doesn't really work on them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I I do, I do agree with you, Laura. They end with that emphasis on, and to you it will be revealed, and not to the Valar. Um, which is an interesting gesture at the end to this sense. Remember where the Numenorians began the debate. We are your peers, Valar. We are among the mighty in Arda. You are, let's talk as, well, remember they're not requesting a conversation, but basically let's relate to each other as, as, as peers. You're the mighty, I'm the mighty. Um, surely we can hang out, right? And surely anything you can do, we can do too. And the Valar have been saying, that's not how it works and you're not understanding. But they do end with, um, you are special. Don't think you're not special. This doesn't make, the fact that we're immortal and you're not doesn't make you lesser or less important. Um, to you it will be revealed that is the purpose, your purpose, and not to the Valar. Um, Iluvatar made you for a purpose. And he has a plan um, for what he plans to do to humanity and through humanity. Um, and that point, that's, that's, you know, you guys are going to be the instruments of that. You guys are going to see that, not us. Um, so that is, I think, an important gesture there at the end. Um, the primary things that I think really need explaining here are, first, the Valar bid you earnestly not to withhold the trust to which you are called. Not to withhold the trust to which you are called. What is what trust are they called to exactly? Lest it soon lest soon it become again a bond by which you are constrained. Become again a bond when was it a bond the first time exactly? Uh, again a bond? Hmm. Uh the love of Arda was set in your hearts, nonetheless, many ages of men unborn may pass ere that purpose is made known. What purpose exactly? The purpose to which he planted the love of Arda in their hearts. Okay. What does that have to do with the bond by which they are constrained and the trust to which they are called? Thoughts, Joe? All right. Um, I don't know how well the show matches up with it, but I'm going to go to the line where it says, Hope, rather than in the end, even the least of your desires shall have fruit. And it makes me think that um, kind of the bond, what, they're constrained to the earth for a short period. Um, and... It seems like they were constrained there to help bless the earth, even though they screwed up a whole lot. Um, they're, I mean, they're not even meant to be there in the first place, so why else would they be there unless they were meant to help? Um, and, I mean, it mentions hope that rather than the end, I mean, hopefully their desire shall fruit. What they want to do will hopefully do good things, and it's and they're saying that uh, hopefully, you know, um, the trust to which you're called, and I think that trust could be to help the earth, uh, does not become uh, a bond again, which they think it's a bad thing they're there, when really they're kind of meant to be there to help do good things. and Like I said, even though they screwed up, because it's not their home, it just seems, that's that's what I make of it, kind of. Just, uh, even their desire share fruit, like, they're, they're there to bring other things and good things about to happen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Uh, Dave? Well, I... I... Uh-oh. I... Uh -oh. <laughs> Who's that? <laughs> it's George. I was jumping me. in. I was, gonna, I was gonna jump in when you were pausing. <laughs> oh, go for it. So, the weird thing that I read in this is that he says the love of Arda was set in your hearts by Luvatar, and he does not plant to no purpose. I mean, that seems so cryptically weird. Like, you love the Earth, and you're going to die, and clearly a Luvatar would not just make you love the Earth for no reason. So is the implication that they somehow, like, fuse with the Earth when they die? Because that seems what it 
that seems like what they're implying is that like, hey, you love Arda, right? Well, when you die, it's going to be even better because clearly Iluvatar has some weird plan that we don't understand, but your love of Arda has to be involved. Yeah, yeah. Though, again, there's this, there's this interesting kind of... Um, there's this interesting kind of obliviousness or semi-obliviousness. Um, Many ages of men unborn may pass or that purpose is made known, and to you it will be revealed and not to the Valar. Oh, oh, wait. Um, Did I say to you I meant to your distant descendants? You're going to be dead, of course, and you'll never see that purpose come to fruition. Um, uh, Yeah, there's... They're speaking, the messengers of the Valar here are speaking kind of collectively of the race of men, whereas so, the, the Numenorians in, are, I, here are worried about themselves and their own lifespan. Can I, can I interrupt? I, I interpreted that to mean sort of a more, you'll die, and then when you die, you'll find out. Maybe. So, in other words, in order to learn about your fate, you're going to have to die. That's sort of the prerequisite. Not, not like I always interpret it to be more sort of the, sort of the modern sort of Christian interpretation of the afterlife, where you die and then you go to heaven. Same sort of deal here. Like you die and then your fate will be revealed. Not you'll die and then there's you know the 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 old school Christian Jewish um, um, resurrection where everyone dies and you go in the ground and you're nothing and then you're resurrected at the end. I sort of interpret it as you're going to die and then your spirit's going to exit the circles of the world and at that point you'll know you'll finally understand. So you have to under so dying is sort of your rite of passage for gaining that knowledge. And I think um if we look back to Baron and Luthien, mm-hmm. I think that, that there's some maybe some evidence that that's how it works because remember he his spirit tarries mm-hmm. um in the halls of Mandos temporarily before he heads out into the wherever it, the heck it was he was going and so they describe his spirit continuing on after his body has expired, and it's going places, and it's heading out into the circles of the world. So presumably, Baron, at least, was going to find out almost immediately after death where he was off to, right? Yes, but I think there are... I would point to two counter-arguments against this. One is, but both in this paragraph. One is the fact that they spent so much time earlier in the paragraph saying as Dave, as you were pointing out before, we don't really know what happens to you. Um, so like maybe they, they're saying we will infer that you will gain knowledge of this after death, but they've just been emphasizing we don't really know what happens and what's going to go on after you die. But the second thing is that just earlier in that same sentence, many ages of men unborn may pass ere that purpose is made known, and to you it will be revealed. Um, they're talking about a point in the temporal future, that is in the future of Arda, when that purpose will be made known. And that it's probably going to be a long time from now. Many ages of men unborn may pass. Um, So sometime in the distant future of Arda, that purpose will be made known, and to you it will be revealed. Um, Now, maybe that means, and to you personally, you know, uh, Frank from Numenor, it's going to be revealed. Um, But it's, uh, you know, when you die, which will probably be soon. Um, But... It's possible, I think, but it's not, it's not, in the context of that sentence, it sounds like, and to you collectively, men, it's go- you are the ones, humans, who are going to see this purpose eventually be fulfilled. Not you personally, but men in general. Um, um, so, I mean, it's not that I think it's, you know, necessarily incorrect to say that 
humans, you know, the individual people, like as you say, with Baron, might gain some kind of understanding, you know, some understanding or enlightenment. Um, and certainly, this is a very common, uh, a very common medieval idea, which I think the most beautiful expression of it that I know of is that is in Chaucer at the end of Chaucer's Troilus and Crusade, and this is a passage that he steals from Boccaccio and just makes it like ten times better than it was in Boccaccio's version. Um, at the end of Troilus and Crusade, when Troilus dies, uh, well, I should say, spoiler alert, if you haven't read Troilus and Crusade, he dies. Anyway, so at the end, when Troilus dies, um, he his spirit leaves his body and ascends up to the third heaven and looks back down at his body and at Troy, uh, which is where he's from. He's one of the sons of Priam and, uh, and at the whole world. And he laughs when he looks down, he laughs and the laughter of Troilus has received much debate, um, uh, and much comment, uh, including by me and my dissertation. But, um, that moment of Troilus looking down and laughing in, according to my reading in, in joy and relief, um, is is like i mean it's again that that's it's part of this medieval idea that when death comes you are in fact your whole perspective is renewed that now you can see things in a proper perspective when before when you were down at ground level and you were caught up in worldly troubles and worldly concerns and fleshly desires and all of these things you know it's hard to maintain the proper perspective on things but when the spirit leaves the body and now you have this uh, this heavenly and eternal perspective on things, things look awful different. Um, so again, that is a traditional idea. So, you know, Dave, it's not that I think that what you're arguing is like in, you know, unlikely or inappropriate or anything, but it does seem from the immediate syntactic context of that sentence that it's referring to the future revelation of the purpose of men and that men are not only going to be instrumental in making it happen, but that they're going to be the ones who understand. And that I think it points towards this, you know, we were talking about, especially thinking about the temple to Iluvatar, this gap between um, this gap between the understanding of those who know Iluvatar, like the Valar, and those who have lived with the Valar, and the men, especially the men in Middle-earth, who don't know anything about truth or light or anything like that, and the Numenorians are the ones who go closest to sort of the Valinorian perspective and know who Iluvatar is and worship him and everything else. And there's, I think, in what the Valar are saying to men here, this indication that there's going to come a time when you guys understand, when you guys have a revelation um, that transcends our own understanding, not just of your, pur- not just of your purpose, the purpose of humanity, but of Iluvatar's purposes on the whole. Um, anyway, um, uh, yeah, we're really over time now, so we should stop. Um, we started a little bit late, but anyway, we should, we should, we should really probably stop. And this is not a terrible time for stopping anyway. Um, right after the debate, and we can start instead of starting with, uh, with, with our Farazan, we can we can start with uh, the decline towards our Farazan next time. Um, uh, any uh, Laura and Mike, you would wanted to say something. Any final comments before we go? Well, I'm not sure this is a good time to bring this up, but um, could could this uh, could this be kind of a veiled reference to the second coming? I mean, I'm just kind of throwing that out there, but but maybe that's what Tolkien is sort of hinting at—that there's going to be this this um, 
the second revelation in the future. Maybe it's, it's kind of a hint of that. So. Well, I think it rather might be a veiled reference to the first coming, actually. But, uh, I mean, it's pretty veiled. Much more veiled, for instance, than in the debate of Andreth and, and Finrod, um, where Christian doctrine is much more explicitly alluded to. Um, but no, I think it's actually the incarnation that is being alluded to here. Um, and I mean, through, oh, yeah. through I'm it. Sorry, in... that's what I. Yeah. That's what I meant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't mean the second coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I do, I do. I, that's I, I, I do think that that's what is being very indirectly pointed towards there. Yeah, Mike. As soon it become again a bond by which you're constrained, are they worried about another fan or like thou? Huh. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's interesting. To say, like, like, look, there's been precedent for this. You know, what happens when your desire for a good thing goes wrong? Um, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't really want to do Feanor again. Maybe, maybe. Um, yeah, yeah, maybe. No, exactly. Because like you say the the again, um, the again. I, I actually, I like for my money, that word is the most puzzling one in that whole paragraph. Um, I'm not sure I understand the again. Um, I was thinking that they're concerned that the men will make an oath to a Luvatar that they will do whatever it takes to, you know, reach, uh, you know, Valinor or or uh, try to reach deathlessness through any means possible. Something akin to what Feanor did with the recovery of the Silmarils. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. I mean, that 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 certainly makes sense, Laura. I thought that was uh, talking about um, the, the fear of death, and uh, you know, under Morgoth, that became such a burden to men um, because he's he's the one who set that fear in their hearts. And the Numenorians have sort of sort of escaped that for a while. I mean, they're they're starting to come under that that same bond again, and that's how I read that. That's a that's that's a really good. Um... That's a really good uh, reading. I mean, certainly, when thinking about a bond that humans were in before, and um, a, a, a bond that humans were in before and are in danger of falling into again, that does seem to be the logical uh, answer to that. Um, it's my only hesitation, or rather, not that, I'm, not, not that I disagree with that, but the only reason that that strikes me as a slightly uh insufficient explanation that it doesn't quite um that doesn't quite solve the whole thing to me for me is um the valor the valor bid you earnestly not to withhold the trust to which you are called lest soon it become again a bond um the trust apparently to which they were called um so that the... and isn't isn't that the trust not to fear death Maybe, maybe, um, yeah, it's possible. It's possible, but I don't. But the the use of trust. Yeah, it's not entirely clear. No, it's not. And it it sounds like like they've been given a trust, like they have a job. You know, um, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, I said I, I. This is not a passage that I feel like I understand completely at all. Um, and it's one of the reasons that I've been focused mostly on asking questions about it because I don't, I don't myself feel like I have all the answers here. But um, okay, okay, it's it's officially way past time to stop. We should go. Thank you guys. This was this was a fun discussion as usual. We are so on pace uh, for two weeks in the Akalabath. I know that uh, uh, Jordan is very excited about that. So, uh, 
Um, anyway, uh, uh, thanks very much for your patience, and for those of you who could <clears throat> stay late, and we'll uh, uh, and we'll we'll resume next week. So uh, thanks everybody for joining us, and for those of you who have been uh, chatting on uh, my Middle Earth, and I will see you guys next week. And that's it, folks. Until next time, this is Brandon Young, and on behalf of my other Silmarillion heirs, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter or even join us. Godspeed.